0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. Today we're going to have a little bit more from Deb Klemper. I happen to really love the way she tells stories, so I really wanted to share with you the way she tells the story of the Horde and the stuff that follows. And there's some really interesting stuff regarding the army and other things that came out during that whole discussion. So I think you're going to enjoy it. All right, here we go. Can you run us briefly through how the Horde was found?
1: The hoard was found by a metal detectorist called Terry Herbert, and he describes it very eloquently. He explains it very well and has done a number of interviews, although he's not always inclined to be interviewed. And his interviews on American television have to be subtitled because he has quite a strong accent. But he went out, he said he asked the farmer for permission to go on the land, and the farmer said to him, oh, you won't find anything much there, because some people had been on the land only a couple of months before. So after the ploughing but before Terry turned up with his metal detecting machine so this is the summer of 2009 and he started detecting and he found material immediately and I believe he went with a cousin but they kept it really really quiet and they did tell the landowner but asked him to keep it quiet but Luckily, they did report it quite quickly to the authorities, which meant that the site got the protection it deserved. But it must have been amazing for Terry. I think he was dreaming about it. I think it freaked him out that he was finding so much. And he'll always say, why did I find it? Why me? Why not someone else, since someone else had been over the field? But it was him.
0: So at, at what point did the historical and archaeological institutions get involved? I know you said they it was rather quickly, but... No.
1: He worked the site and then called the Fines liaison officer who's from the National Portable Antiquities Scheme which is based, the head office is at the British Museum but there are people based in various museums and places around the country and that chap went up to see him immediately because Terry said I found lots of Saxon gold so he thought we'd better go and check although sometimes it doesn't always turn out to be quite like that and in this instance it was absolutely true and there are some amazing photos I'm not sure if they're online showing Terry standing rather stunned in his living room with all his artefacts laid out and he just did realise he needed help and it's good job he called people in because he didn't plot in his finds we know roughly where they were found from the soil disturbance and that's been plotted but the archaeologists, when they started excavating, of course, were plotting in every find. And they, Terry helped them. He joined to go over the clods of earth that were being dug up because the, the land is quite clayey and the soil sticks together. Even if you're careful with a trowel, you could miss a tiny piece of gold or a garnet. His machine doesn't pick up the garnets. There was some sieving initially to see what material might be lost if, we did, if they didn't sieve. And then excavating. And I went there to visit during about the first week of the excavation which is towards the end of July 2009 and while I was there I was there for two hours 70 pieces came out of this quite small area and all the time you could see the stress on the powers that be how are we going to keep this quiet because you had to let a number of people know for due process to happen and then you just hope no one gets drunk in a pub and tell someone else but it all worked people kept it totally quiet there were security guards at the site and at the very end to be absolutely sure that all the metal was off the Ministry of Defence came in and remember this was trying to be low profile and they came in it was with the police they had a police escort and these were boffins for want of a better word who tried out this new detector to use in Afghanistan to detect minute bits of explosive material and tiny traces of metal and they came in and tested it on the site. And they, they came in, there was, a, there was a helicopter, there were three or four police cars with blue lights flashing, and this big incident wagon turned up, and so the locals began to think something was very exciting. <laughs> but luckily that was on the last day of the excavation.
0: So with the exception of the helicopter and flashing lights and everything... At the very end, uh, yes. Yeah, right. What other methods were used to determine where to dig?
1: The archaeologists had to they laid out a grid on the where the site they thought the site was, and they actually used Terry's skills to detect over the land that he hadn't dug into. That was for the initial work, but subsequently, as soon as the item was declared treasure, the more work did carry on at the site and some of it's published, which you may you can read. I think you can access it online and where they did trenches and they looked at soil samples to see if the soil profile, if you could tell what vegetation had been growing there as opposed to another part of the field. Quite a lot of work was done, and if you watch, I think it's the second National Geographic programme, it summarises that quite well, but every sort of type of analysis was thrown at that particular field, and as you say, it still seems clear that the artefacts were in the plough soil. There is a curvilinear ditch, so a ditch curving away to one side, but no-one's established a link because the objects were in the playa soil to this particular ditch. Speed was of the essence in excavating the material, so it was a very difficult call for the archaeologists they had to protect the site they had to recover the material they had to be fairly speedy and they had to keep it totally quiet so they started by doing some sieving but the sieving was very very slow and they were worried that the site would be attacked is the wrong word but people would find it and detect loot it. it loot it but there were two guards but any sensible guard would keep away so a lot of people turned up and the site is incredibly prominent. You can see the Watling Street and the vehicles going up and down. They can see you. And there's another road at the side. And also there's a big motorway, Toll Road, as well. So the site, you felt incredibly exposed when you were up there. And people did wander up. And a local reporter from some Lichfield newspaper wandered up and... Um, Asked what was happening, they said it to him. They said it was a Roman dig with some human remains, and it was a training exercise for university students. He wrote a story about it, and it went, got into the local paper that there was some Roman dig going on near the Watling Street. But that determined a lot of the methodology. So sieving was abandoned, as far as I understand it, because it was taking too long, and laying out a grid area where the bulk of the hoard appeared to be worked and It didn't appear to spread beyond that area, and subsequent work seemed to show that to be the case. And they've done density plots of the spread of the material, trying to work out if it was in one or two boxes or bags, or whether it could have been, or whether we'll ever be able to tell.
0: Were there any soil samples kept from the finds to see if there was any organic material? We
1: still have those, yeah, and there is a look for organics that's happening. I haven't talked about what's happening at the British Museum, but uh, they're looking at the helmet. And the helmet foils but they're also looking for organics of any sort and that's our early stages that's that'll be really exciting how were the foils fitted in with the garnets it's thought that the garnet and the foil goes in at the same time they're pushed into the cell together but what holds them we're very lucky Some of it's quite damaged, because then you can look at the structure. There is a slice through some pieces, which is where they were pulled apart, and you can see how the cells were constructed. There's loads and loads of work we can do because the pieces are damaged. So weep not for the damage, because we can get so much information out of it. And organics, I think, will be there in terms of various pastes and so on.
0: So can you give us a step-by-step description of what was done with the finds after they were unearthed?
1: They bagged and boxed them individually, and... This is the archaeologists, and they were taken into safe storage every night and, and put in a safe off-site. Kevin Leahy, the uh, specialist who's also from the Portable Antiquities Scheme, he started cataloguing it as soon as he could because they knew it was going to take a long time, and he used raffle tickets in each bag so that in the speed of doing things he wouldn't replicate a number. So you've got numbers that the archaeologists gave the sort of site as a whole, and they gave them special find numbers and, and, and while they were plotting them and then Kevin catalogued them in a numerical sequence. And once they were out of the ground, they didn't do much to them. Some of the pieces had come out clean, or Terry would cleaned them, and some pieces were very, very dirty because the saw was very uh, claggy. There were a group of finds and a series of earth clumps, which appeared maybe they were lots of little separate bags. It seemed that there were lots of little bits near the bottom of these clumps, and Terry would recognised them. He was the one who pulled them out of the ground. And some of those were sieved. Uh, wet sieved in various mesh sieves to recover material which is why some of the pieces are so tiny Terry wouldn't have picked those up in the field and much of that work was done off site so on site recovery you'd have seen a group of people working away and you'd have seen a theodolite and people measuring and photographing Um, and you might have seen geophysics machines checking what the ground is like during the initial recovery and then of course at the end the Ministry of Defence chaps and then Much of the work on the hoard happened back at base. At this point, the base was Birmingham's conservation studio and special packing was made for each piece and a lot of the cataloguing happened there. And although I visited the site and saw things being excavated there, the full impact of it came when I saw the initial cataloguing for the coroner's inquest back at Birmingham. I was there all afternoon with the coroner. I visited with the coroner. We were there for three hours as Kevin was going through the material and cataloguing and he was letting us look at things and hold things. And no joke, I had to go home and lie down in a darkened room. I was so overwhelmed, I was so phased. And it was funny because when people are making a TV programme, they talk to lots of different people and another expert said exactly the same thing, that she had to go home and sort of recover from what she'd just seen. She could not believe it. And that's what everyone said who first saw it. When it was all boxed up and bagged, and had been declared treasure because the catalogue had been done. It was all transported to London because it had to be valued. And when you lay out all of the items, all of them together, it takes four hours because they're all individually boxed. So you've got a great long table and all these boxes being opened, and not even the objects being taken out of the boxes, just opening the boxes and putting them down. Incredible, isn't it? everything's exceptional about the find and maybe another group of archaeologists might have done it slightly differently certainly if not under pressure the pressure of concern for the safety of the finds people might have done it differently
0: well and my understanding was it was also an exceptionally wet july as well so uh, oh it's
1: horrendous horrendous weather we always joke about these mythical english summers but usually (laughs) what you're talking about is that an English hot weekend where there's been no rain and but that July 2009 was particularly wet Uh, Terry would happily recount for you the story of when he was caught out there in a thunderstorm with a metal
0: detector yes Uh,
1: and he rushed back to the car and he thought I'm going to be struck by lightning all the gold will just melt I'll be dead with all this (laughs) melted gold all over me and it was horrendous and I think the archaeologists found it because this very clay soil it was quite difficult a clay subsoil as well so yes it was it wasn't balmy beautiful weather at all it's quite
0: a challenging dig
1: it was i think the, the security being the biggest concern
0: so now that we have these these objects out of the ground yes. uh, what process are we using to restore them
1: conservation or restoration is minimal curators and conservators are very precise about their terminology so restoration won't be happening I don't think, it'll be preservation and conservation or conservation and then preservation and where anything's are loose they might be very lightly glued with a reversible adhesive so that you can take it away again if you needed to understand the structure things will not be bent back into shape partly because if you know your laws of physics which I have actually mostly forgotten even though I did study them They've bent beyond the point of return. They can't, I think it's just the law of elasticity, you can't bend them back without causing further damage. But of course we can, digitally. And that's one of the stages of things I haven't mentioned to you, which is very likely to happen, because we have loads of companies and our own staff and so on wanting to do everything from apps and games to actually can we see how these objects look and some a little bit of that work's already been done where you can spin an object around and look at it from all sides so it's on one of the iPads in the, the gallery but physically the objects are likely to stay as they are pieces are being, joins are being found as I think I pointed out to you for a hilt plate and that's good, that reduces the quantity <laughs> and perhaps the, the boxing we can have fantastic replicas made I think you probably saw there were some handling replicas which were done through a laser technology's changing all the time at the moment The chap we use for the laser copies of the filigree items can't do garnets because they're too reflective and shiny and he has to use too much of his own imagination on AutoCAD to fill in the shiny gaps. But that'll change, I'm sure. So restoration will be virtual.
0: And as far as preservation, to make sure that these are available for future generations, yes. uh, what are what are we doing to make sure that it doesn't break down
1: and everything? They're being stay. They're all all the artifacts are stabilized, even those not clean uh, uh, are seen to be stable. There's an inherent risk with anything that you can take in and out of a box or move around from place to place, which we have done with the hoard, of course, to fulfill display requirements, etc. But the conservators stabilize the pieces, and we're very lucky that almost all the pieces that we've got i can't say that i can't say hand on heart every single one but almost all the pieces we i've seen are stable and you saw the process where i let you handle a gold artifact not from the hoard but from nearby you had to take your ring off you had to put vinyl inert gloves on if your rings won't come off you have to tape them up and then you can handle it and that helps reduce any effect on any say organics that might be there
0: Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed that. And we're going to hear more from Deb. I actually just completed an interview with her today on the newest find, those 81 objects that were declared treasure only three days ago. So very soon, quite possibly even today, we're going to get another episode where she's going to tell us about these newest finds And we're going to have essentially breaking news on a podcast, which I think is super cool. So I'm really excited about that. So I'm getting right to work. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast.gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. You can go to facebook.com slash British History or head over to Twitter and search for at British Podcast. Or you can go over to the forums. Just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Click Get Involved and click Forums. All right. Thanks for listening.